Hello and welcome, welcome back to the Connected Divergence podcast. I'm Tina Etheridge. I am your coach and your host. And today on this podcast, I feel very called to talk about demand avoidance and my experiences around demand avoidance. And the reason for that is because I had a huge demand avoidance um, experience last night, one of the most intense intense demand avoidance moments that I've experienced in a long, long time. And it's so funny. It's been so interesting working on this podcast every week. And I have a rolling a rolling list in my notes app of ideas and things I can talk about and want to talk about, which is the same thing I actually do for my, my posts and my content. But interestingly, very similarly to my posts and my content on Instagram, on here, it is also so much about intuition and feel and pull and not what I have predetermined or prescribed to myself of, I'm going to talk about this today or this this week, but instead what my brain feels like I want. I feel pulled. I feel called to talk about what my intuition is telling me that I want to talk about, what I feel inspired by, what I feel most connected to. And I just think that that's such a powerful reflection on the act of creating, or at least my journey and experiences with creating um, and getting back in touch with my creativity (laughs) in a maybe not as neurotypical way, in a more neurodivergent, affirming and embracing way. But anyway, I digress. So today I want to talk to you about demand avoidance. And there is a spectrum of demand avoidance that exists. If you don't know already what demand avoidance is, it's the phenomenon or the internal experiences of perceiving a demand, which can be an expectation, an obligation, a duty, um, and feeling, oh, how do I explain this? Feeling like an internal cringe around it, an internal pulling away, an internal ick, an internal ugh, an internal angst around that demand. And demands can look like so many different things. They can be a demand of your partner asking you to take out the trash. That is a demand. It can be um, brushing your teeth every night. That is a demand. It can be going to work, going to school. My whole life going to school, I had the most dread for going to school every day and going to soccer practices every week. And it was because I perceived those as demands and my brain is wired to avoid those demands. Other examples of demand avoidance are the demand of replying back to texts or emails. A very common autistic experience is the demand of people expecting you to hug them or give them physical attention or affection. Um, That can be perceived as demand, right? And and our families and our culture oftentimes were um, taught that we should hug our family members or kiss our family members or say hello when we're very, very young, from a very young age but that can feel like a demand. It does for me. And it's not that I don't love people, love my family, or I don't want to hug them. I do. It's just when I receive it as a demand or an expectation, my brain rebels against that. Making decisions can also be a demand. Um, Have certain people's energy or presence, right? If they're maybe a really talkative person and they're telling you their whole life story and you're on an airplane and you are thinking that you would be on this airplane to watch a movie or listen to your podcast and this person really wants to talk to you and you really don't want that. That can be a demand. 
Um, there's a whole there's a whole range of demands. I'm gonna put a really great resource that I found about this in the show notes. I'll leave a link to that where it gives you more ideas about what is a demand, what can demands be. Um, but I think I was com- I want to come back to the idea that there is a spectrum for the experience of demand avoidance. And maybe, you know, one side of that spectrum is the autistic profile of PDA, um, pathological demand avoidance, PDA autism. And so this is a a profile of autism that some autistic people experience that really, really relate to. And I think this can often be the most, um, you know, the furthest on the spectrum, the experience of demand avoidance, where every, you know, kind of every, everything you're navigating is a demand. I think ADHDers can sometimes experience demand avoidance too. Um, and really, again, I just want to say it is, this is a spectrum. This is, it's different for everyone. Some people experience it a lot more. Some people experience it a lot less, but I will say for myself, I experience a lot of demand avoidance and I have my whole life. And Specifically, demand avoidance for me can often lead to an autistic meltdown or an autistic shutdown. And I really wish I had known this about myself when I was so much younger. It would have been very helpful for me. And it probably would have been really helpful too for my parents understanding this about me. And (laughs) I don't know if there were resources in the 90s for demand avoidance, but that knowledge would have been really useful. So for me, when I was a child and a teenager where my demand avoidance showed up the most was for like scheduled piano lessons that I had every week, my scheduled soccer practices and uh, soccer games that I had, and also just like going to school every single day. Um, Brutal for me, absolutely brutal for me. And I experienced so much. It just literally felt like I am expected to be here. There is a demand, there's an expectation, there's an obligation, there's a duty for me to be here and there's no escaping this. And it really was true, right? Like you can't really get out of school. You have to go to school. And so um, that was a really big struggle for me. And I often, especially when it would come to soccer practices, I would have meltdowns around going to soccer practices because I was just exhausted. I was just exhausted at the idea of having to go. And I would say now as an adult, I still experience demand avoidance. And this is something that causes me emotional dysregulation and really turbulent emotions. And for the longest time in my life, when I didn't understand this part of myself, I thought to myself, well, I just must be weak or I must I must not be mentally strong enough or, you know, what's wrong with me that this quote unquote simple thing going, attending, doing this task, whatever else, is causing me to be so depressed. And the feeling I have when I experience demand avoidance, to describe it to you, it feels like I'm an angsty teenager again. It feels like I'm angry and salty and I don't wanna and very snarky and just like negative attitude, bad, (laughs) bad mental brain state. Um, and it can be so extreme, right? If, if the demand is intense for me, it can be so extreme that I will have like extreme emotional dysregulation and even suicidal ideation. And I believe this is my autistic meltdown, my autistic shutdown experience, because it feels exactly the same as when I would go to the mall when I was a teenager, which, you know, back in the 90s, that was the thing to do. But every time I would go to the mall, 
I understand now I was so overstimulated by everything that was going on and all of the visual and the auditory experiences. It was so overstimulating to me that it would make me extremely depressed, extremely emotionally dysregulated, and again, suicidal ideation. And it's the same exact experience for me when I have a really, really strong demand avoidant experience. So with that in mind, with this being like such a prevalent thing in my life, pretty much every single tool, technique, mindset, perspective um, that I share when it comes to the experience of ADHD, ADHD has demand avoidance in mind. And I think, you know, some of my best approaches to doing the things that I want to do have my, what might be considered a harm reductive um a harm reductive approach because truly harm reduction helps me embrace radical self-acceptance a lot more graciously. So in that way, a lot of the strategies that I share are a harm reductive approach to our executive dysfunction, a harm reductive approach to emotional dysregulation. So if you don't know about harm reduction, it's a, um, It's a very common um, or becoming more common of approach that uh, is helpful for public health policies and um, drug use, drug misuse. And the idea is for some people doing the 12 steps or going cold turkey works really, really well for them. But for other people, that kind of all or nothing experience doesn't tend to work. It doesn't work for their brain. And so instead, instead of maybe stopping drinking alcohol altogether, a harm reduction approach would look like, okay, I'm going to drink less or I'm going to drink only in these circumstances. And it's not that I'm going to cut out drinking altogether, but I'm going to, you know, reduce the harm that I experience as much as I can, where it feels accessible and doable. And that that's something that can be built on more over time. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I use that same approach for my experience of ADHD and autism. So with all of that being said, I want to share my more direct, more explicit approaches that help me with my demand avoidance. The first being, it helps me to communicate with other people that it it very much benefits me when a request is asked as a request or an offer or an invitation rather than an expectation, an obligation, a duty. So for example, my ex-husband, his parents, I just remember this so explicitly, his parents would kind of just tell him, hey, go do this thing. Hey, go do this chore. Hey, go do this yard work. Hey, go do this thing. And every time, even though I wasn't the one (laughs) that was directly experiencing the demand, I got like, I don't know, the side effect of the cringe, just this internal cringe and that angst and that anger. And anyway, I could go on. But what benefits me the most is when people do not tell me, hey, go do this, but instead ask or request or invite me to do it. Um, Because in that way, I get the sense of, okay, cool, if I do this thing, that means I'm going to be helping you or I'm going to be, you know, working towards something that helps meet your needs or a need that you have. And in that way, it's not that I don't experience any demand avoidance or the cringe or the angst, 
But oftentimes in those situations, I will have two internal dialogues going. The first one being the angry, angsty teenager. But then I also have this other internal dialogue that can have a conversation with the other one. And that one is more compassionate, more loving, and more like, I care about this person and I want to help them. And um, I want to do things that help meet their needs. And so those two inner dialogues can have a little bit more of a conversation. And it means that it all becomes a little bit more doable a little bit more possible and a little bit less likely for me to have like a full on meltdown. The second thing that is really helpful for me is body doubling or the invitation to do something together. If you don't know what body doubling is, I talk about it in, I just had to look it up, episode four of this podcast. So go check that episode out. But body doubling is basically the experience of doing a task with or alongside another human. And so we're not doing it all alone. We have mirror neurons to rely on and to help us do it. And we also have the experience of co-regulation, co-regulated nervous systems to help us do a task. And so body doubling can be like, all right, great, let's put away this laundry together. Or it can look like, all right, um, you're gonna cook and I'm gonna do dishes and we are in this together, right? We are a team, we are here for each other, we're here to support each other. So body doubling can be a really, really useful tool that helps me so much with my demand avoidance. And then another thing is when possible, and of course I understand that it is not always possible, but when possible, whenever possible, I try to do things when my brain has the, the its own consent to do so. And maybe that's not enthusiastic consent of like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm ready to do the dishes. But even if my brain is like, "Eh, all right, yeah, I guess I can do the dishes. That's fine. That's enough. And that's okay. Because really when, whenever I am quote unquote forced or there is a high demand for me to do something in that moment, especially in the moment when my brain isn't really ready for it, or I haven't had enough transition time, or I haven't, you know, maybe processed the thing that happened right just before this, it is extremely difficult for my brain. It is it is one of the hardest things that I experience. And so for me, this authentic kind of self-consent and hopefully enthusiastic consent, but not always, it is not just a nice thing that I do for myself. It's not just like a, oh yeah, I'm going to be kind to myself. Like this is necessary. This is essential. This is not optional for me. This is how my brain is wired. And so, like I said before, there was a time in my life when I was shaming myself and, you know, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm so immature. I need to just stop. Like, why can't I just do this without feeling angry? You know, this isn't a big deal. It's not even that hard. Why am I acting like it's hard? And all of those very shaming thoughts. But Shaming myself has never led into any kind of evolution or growth. And so what I choose to do instead is to let go of shame. And, you know, part of that is me talking about my experiences, right? I just wrote in my email newsletter about this experience and, you know, specifically something that happened last night around doing the dishes and I'm talking about it here, right? All of this is helping me understand my brain and let go of shame And um, I really encourage you, if you don't have an outlet to do that, please find one. It's so important, whether it's a neurodivergent affirming therapist or coaching or another neurodivergent friend that has the space to, you know, talking about our experiences is critical for the process of unshaming. 
And then, you know, the other thing here is oftentimes when I have these heavy, difficult demand avoidant experiences, it can leave kind of a big negative emotional memory, a negative emotional experience around this thing that I was trying to do. So again, when I can, when it's possible, I wait for my brain to be ready. A affirmation that I like to tell myself is my brain will do this task when it is ready to do this task. And I have always, always, always found that to be true. When I say to myself, okay, brain, like when we're ready or when we're not ready. And when I tell myself my brain is going to do this when it is ready to do it, I have always found that to be true. And there's something about those words that again helps us let go of shame and gives us space and gives us time and decreases the demand. And then the next thing that I really try to do is, you know, again, there's some situations that are out of my control, but when I can, for the most part, I come back to continuing to cultivate positive emotional memories and positive emotional experiences, going slow, doing less, honoring my needs, honoring how my brain is feeling and what my brain does or does not want to do. So all of this comes back, in my opinion, to the concept of self-trust. And I think so often in neurotypical society and neurotypical culture, self-trust is willpower. Self-trust is discipline. Self-trust is saying you're going to do the thing and then doing it, even though it feels awful and shitty and you don't want to. (laughs) And I disagree with that definition of self-trust. Self-trust to my neurodivergent brain means that I'm going to continue to show up in caring for myself. Self-trust to me means honoring my needs. And self-trust to me means that if my brain doesn't feel like doing a thing in that moment, it doesn't mean that my brain will never feel like doing the thing. And in fact, when I give myself more space and more gentleness and decrease the demand That is when my brain often has the opportunity to opt in, to authentically consent, to say yes, and maybe even sometimes hell yes to doing a thing. Maybe one, one, one last little thing I want to leave you with. So I have experienced demand avoidance around exercise, around movement, around dieting in my life historically, and These are also demands, right? There is a demand to follow a diet. There is a demand to, oh, I have to exercise because if I don't exercise, then, you know, uh, I won't be healthy and, you know, I'll have heart disease and blah, 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 and I have to exercise or I should exercise. There's so much shoulds around food and movement. And I struggled with that for most of my life. But when I broke free, I could do a whole podcast episode on this. I probably will one day. But when I broke free from that was when I gave myself full permission to never exercise ever again if I didn't want to. When I gave myself full permission to never go on a diet ever again. And when I like believed that in my brain, not just like saying it, but oh yeah, but I'll probably go on another diet in a couple of months. But really saying in my brain, I am never going to diet ever again. And I am never going to exercise ever again. And I did that and I took about a year, a year for me to, and you know, it takes as long as it takes, but it took a year. And then, and then one day I woke up and I was like, huh, I think I kind of want to go do a little workout. 
And it was because I authentically wanted to, right? It was no more should. It took me a year to rewire my brain and have, you know, neuroplasticity come into effect for my brain to be in a place where it was like, oh, wait, I actually authentically want to do this. It's no longer a should. It's no longer a demand. It's no longer an obligation. Like, I want to do this. And it's the same thing when it came to intuitive eating for me, right? Like, letting go of the demand and the expectation of like, oh, here's the foods that I should eat versus what I shouldn't eat. It took time, but I got to the point where I got to come into touch with my own like cravings and just total food freedom. And again, I could go, I could go on and on and on about this, but I won't today. I will leave that for another podcast episode, but I hope this episode was helpful. If you experienced demand avoidance, I hope you gave it I hope it gave you some insights, some knowledge, some perspectives, and some information for you to work with. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Please leave a like because it helps other people find this podcast and help them too. All right, loves, have a wonderful week and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye.